take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the Gospel of John chapter 1. We're going to take one last look at John chapter 1 this morning, focusing on verses 11 through 13 in the close of our Christmas series. The Bible says elsewhere that when the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because your sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that we're no longer slaves, but sons, and if sons, then heirs through God. John 1, specifically the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning, speaks to what it means to be a child of God. Who are the children of God? And on some level, poses the question that must be asked and answered by all of us, are we a child of God. We're going to read all of verses 1 through 14, but again, we're going to focus almost exclusively on verses 11 through 13. I, I don't know that I'll do a great job of preaching this passage this morning. I don't feel as though I have yet today, but I really want for you to capture the essence of what John is communicating in these verses, because I'm convinced that on some level, these verses provide for us an anecdote to so much of the cultural Christianity that plagues the church in the Western world. So hear well what John describes in these verses. John 1 and verse number 1. If you found your way there, let's stand together out of respect and honor for the reading of his word. The Bible says, beginning in verse 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Life was in him, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man named John who was sent from God. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light, the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and took up residence among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. We have noted in prior weeks that John's gospel speaks from the perspective of heaven. Whereas the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, with reference to the birth of Jesus, the incarnation of Christ, help us to see that experience through the human experience of Mary and Joseph and shepherds and a prophetess named Anna and various others who participate in uh, the welcoming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who understand the significance of God sending forth his only son. But here John gives us this divine perspective on the incarnation of Christ. 
fact. But even with this theological perspective we enjoy here in John chapter 1, John does not neglect the practical purpose for Christ's birth into the world. Jesus Christ came to seek out and to save the lost. That was the agenda of Jesus when he left behind the glories of heaven, condescends to come and dwell in the midst of man, clothed in flesh, bearing with all of the indignities and the difficulties of life in a sin-plagued world. The goal of Jesus Christ always was and always has been to seek out and to save the lost. I, I want you to see beginning in verse number 11, this agenda as it unfolds, what God intends for us, what the purpose and plan of God is in the incarnation of Jesus, and ultimately what the purpose and plan of God is in the gospel. Verse 11, here the Bible says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. That should be for us somewhat startling. That God who made the earth came to earth and the earth did not recognize him in verse number 10 and did not receive him in verse number 11. Sometimes I think we convince ourselves reflecting back on our pre-conversion experience that under different circumstances we would have observed Jesus differently. We would have heard the gospel differently. Our responses, our behavior, our morals, our values might have been different. But this verse seems to indicate something on the contrary. Often I've been in gospel conversations with unbelievers who suggested that under different circumstances, if there were a fuller revelation, if there were just some way that they could know with absolute certainty that Jesus is who we say he is, then I could embrace Christ. I could believe in him and trust my soul to him, surrender to his lordship. But this passage speaks to the blinding power of sin. Jesus literally came to his own, and they did not receive him. This ought to be a warning for us, right, to the incredible power of sin to blind our eyes to what is so apparent to see. Right now in this room, there are those of you who are operating in utter blindness. You have been blinded by your sin and your pride, and you are incapable of seeing what is so plainly before you. This ought to be sobering for us, that in, in many cases, what you are so, searly, so sincerely committed to is so incredibly wrong in the eyes of God. What you have so thoroughly convinced yourself is right is so thoroughly wrong in the eyes of God. What, what you in your heart of hearts are living on, what drives you with every day, what you're living your life on the basis of, may be so wildly out of touch with the reality that is so plainly before you as the product of sin and its blinding effect in your life. Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. I would add, given that we were talking about last week, John as a witness, and that example for us and our ability to share the gospel, how we have been called to be witnesses, there is in some kind of backhanded way an encouragement here for us, right? Jesus came to his own, and his own did not receive him. 
Some of you are reluctant to bear witness to what Christ has done in your life because you're afraid you won't have the right argument to respond to whatever a skeptic is, uh, brings before you. I, I don't know how I'll engage with that. I, I don't understand this particular field or how I would respond to this criticism of, of the gospel or even the word of God. It's not an argument that wins people to faith in Jesus. Jesus came to his own, and his own didn't receive him. Again, stick to what you know to be true, what Christ has done in your life, what he's done for you, and what by the power of the gospel he may do for others as well. Just go and, and preach and pray that God would give eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to discern the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Verse 12, the Bible says, but all who did receive him, he gave the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name. When I was in elementary school, I got caught making fun of another kid in class, which is a bad thing, kids. And the teacher told me, we're all God's children. Now, in my meanness, I didn't believe that then, but actually have some spiritual justification for that this morning, right? There is an extent to which we are all God's children in the broad way of defining the language of children and the universal fatherhood of God. We all owe our existence, our ability to stand here today to God. Our origin is owed to God. God made us as we are. But those who are to be rightly called the children of God are those John describes as having received Jesus and having believed in his name. We speak at times, I think unintentionally, as universalist, suggesting that we are all God's children in a salvific sense, but that could not be further from, from the truth. The right to be called the children of, of God is a right exclusive to those who have received him or have, as John describes, believed in his name. So what does it mean to receive Jesus in this context? Well, it may be the idea of receiving Jesus, surrendering to Jesus. We use this language in common church vocabulary to talk about a person coming to faith in Christ. It seems in the immediate context of John chapter 1, it has to do with those who received his incarnation, received his birth gladly. They, they are the opposite of those who rejected him. He came into his own, and his own did not receive him. But to those who did receive him, to those who welcomed him gladly, who rejoiced at the birth of Jesus, to them he gave the right to be called the children of God. But then he describes the children of God as those who have believed in his name. We've played fast and loose with the language of belief and faith in our day as well, and so confused that title also. John chapter 2, in one of the scariest passages in the New Testament, in my estimation, the Bible says that Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, and many trusted or believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all and because he didn't need anyone to testify about man for he himself knew what was in them. In other words, Jesus is in Jerusalem doing many signs and there were some there who believed in him. But because Jesus knew what was in their heart, he did not entrust himself to them. In the plainest language I could possibly use, there were some who believed in him, but Jesus did not save them because he knew what was in their heart. Now, that's a scary passage of Scripture, right? 
Now, what we, what we take from that and what we understand that to mean in the context of the Gospel of John is that those were interested primarily in Jesus' miracle-working power. They're drawn to the signs. They have this superficial level of belief that does not deeply change or affect them. They are unmoved by what they have observed in Jesus, except that they have an interest in attaining the benefits that come with Jesus. They want to use Jesus as their heavenly genie. Now, I raise this because I think that this is a, a huge, a critical obstacle for us to overcome in doing meaningful gospel ministry in our immediate context. The challenges to the gospel in our area are largely pseudo-Christian, meaning that we're not dealing with atheism in record numbers in our community, right? Like if you go out and you share the gospel, you are for, far more likely to run into someone who says to you, I'm a believer who is not a believer than you are to run into someone who, who simply says, I'm not a believer, I'm an atheist or agnostic or whatever title they choose to take. But it is apparent by the lifestyle or the behavior patterns or even the treasure of the heart of that person you share with that they are not truly a believer. How do we reckon with this? How do we deal with this? What does it mean to believe in a saving way? Jesus helps us to see the answer in the verses immediately after that passage we read in John chapter 2. In conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus says to him, you must be born again. So you have, on, on the one hand, this superficial level of belief that leaves us un, unmoved, unaffected, unfazed. Cultural Christianity, right? This is what we contend with. This is what we reckon with in many of our gospel conversations. Lostness that does not see itself as lost. And then on the other hand, we have the Bible promise that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And the pivot point, the difference between unsaving belief and saving belief is the new birth. And it's the language of the new birth that John adopts for conversation in the foregoing verse. Jesus, John says rather in verse 12, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. John is saying here what Jesus says somewhat more eloquently later in John chapter 3, you must be born again to be suitably called, rightly called, justifiably called a child of God. You must be born again. Again, that's the difference between a belief that does not save and a belief that radically transforms and changes our life. And if you've shared the gospel three times in your life, you have experienced that distinguishing between those two is so critically important to gospel conversation. Most of the people in my life that I love and care for deeply and long to see come to faith in Jesus are in this camp right here. The unsaved Christian, the unsaved believer, who would assent to intellectually the historical facts of the gospel. They will all celebrate this Christmas the birth of Jesus Christ. Next spring, they will all celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. On Good Friday, they will celebrate the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. 
but they have not believed or affirmed those historical facts in a way that has moved their heart, that has transformed their life, that has changed who they are in their very soul. Still dead in sin, ascending to intellectual facts, historical facts, yet to be moved by the power of the gospel. We've got to account for that, right? That, that better be a part of gospel conversation in our community. Within the Bible Belt South, where we live and move and breathe and have our existence, you better be able to account for the great difference between the kind of John chapter 2 faith that the Bible talks about and the John chapter 3 new birth kind of faith that's here referenced in our passage. Only those who receive Jesus who have believed on his name in this deep and meaningful way can truly be called the children of God. You, you would think that in the heart of conservative country where we are, there'd not be great theological challenge to deal with, right? Things would go relatively smoothly. But, but there is a creeping and cancerous universalism at work among us that leads us to the wrong-headed conclusion that going to heaven, that being a child of God is simply the product of our existence in the Bible Belt South, and nothing could be further from the truth. It simply is not true that all of us die and go off to heaven. It simply is not true that all of the people in your circle of friends and influence are walking faithfully with Jesus. We've got to be honest about this if we're ever to do anything about the issue itself. We must distinguish between saving faith and a faith that cannot save, between those who would simply pay homage to or lip service, to the facts of the gospel without ever genuinely being moved by the power of the gospel. Are y'all tracking with me this morning? Only those who have believed on his name in this deep and meaningful way can truly be called the children of God. Now in verse 13, I said to you when introducing the passage that John has something to say about who the children of God are he also has something to say here about how we become the children of God, but he does so by the process of elimination, right? John doesn't say, this is how you become a child of God. Rather, John says, this is how you cannot become a child of God. And so by the process of elimination, we're, we're able to come to some, some conclusions about how it is that we indeed become the children of God. Again, he says, he gave them the right to be the children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. And there's sort of two schools of thought about how we understand what John is describing here. One understands John to be describing uh, ancestral lineage. Like the reference to being born not of blood is a reference to our uh, parents and the heritage that comes with uh, being their descendants. The will of the flesh would be a reference to man's drive for sexual intimacy and uh, reproductive processes that would flow forth from that. The will of man would be about man's desire for woman or even woman's desire for man. What it seems clear that school is emphasizing and what is apparent in my estimation in the passage is that we cannot be saved by the faith of our parents or our ancestors. Some of you here had some of the godliest parents that one could ever imagine. 
I, I had the godliest and most precious grandmother that ever walked the face of the earth. I'll always believe it. And you can't convince me otherwise. But the faith of my granny, nor the faith of your parents, can save you from your sin. That seems simple enough, the kind of thing that most would embrace and acknowledge. But it has happened often through the years that in conversation, it seems to me that there exists a belief that parents or grandparents or family connection to the Christian faith or some Christian church somehow merits the favor of God toward you. Your relationship between you and Jesus, although public in the sense that it matters to others, is personal in the sense that no one can do that for you. You must individually, personally, be born again. You cannot be saved by your ancestral heritage. I would add to that sort of in the same vein that you cannot be saved by your national identity or ethnic background. In the days of worldwide nationalism, which is a strange phenomenon to me, it's important, I think, that we note that. The fact that you are an American or the fact that you are an American by some specific ethnic identity does not win for you the favor of God. We could say the same of any country in the world, of any ethnic identity or background in the world, and the same would always and forever be true. God shows no partiality, no favoritism. We are, in that sense, universally the children of God by faith in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free. Being, simply being born cannot win for you the favor of God. You were born as a child of Satan. You must be born again as a child of God. Now, there's a second way of approaching the passage, one that sort of combines this emphasis on our ancestral lineage with our desires or our behavior. In this approach, which I think to be the most appropriate approach, we would note with that first phrase, not of blood, that what John intends is that we be mindful of the fact that our parents' faith cannot save us from our sin. But when John speaks of the will of the flesh in the next phrase, he's likely talking about our desires, our sincerity, the thing that drives us the most. It's, it's not your drive, your sincerity, or your self-determination that can save you from your sin. You can be sincere, and you can be sincerely wrong. I would even add, I can go as far as adding, your decisions cannot save you from your sin. Your, your decision is necessary. You must choose Christ if you are to be saved from your sin. But the decisive decision was made in the councils of heaven. Your decision can't save you, but Jesus can. We're to be born again, not of blood, not of the will of the flesh. That is, not by our most earnest desire. Sometimes we do most earnestly the wrong thing. We're to be born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man. Sheer force and self-determination cannot save you from your sin. Some of you have operated under a system whereby you've convinced yourself that what I'm going to do is I'm going to get my act together, pull myself up by my bootstraps, and then I'm going to come to God and he's going to accept me just as I am. That could not be farther from what the gospel has called us to do. 
This morning, I would challenge you and encourage you, just gather up all of your junk, all of the mess that you've made for yourself, all of the boneheaded decisions that you've made, and all of the consequences that come with them, and bring them to the foot of the cross. If he can raise the dead to life, he can handle the baggage that you bring. He can take care of it. He can address it. Your self-determination will only leave you in a worse place than you were found in the first place. There's a parable about this, right? Where a man by self-determination cleaned himself up, he got himself together, there was a spirit that was cast out. The spirit went off and wandered around and found some friends. And they came back and they found that the man's house had been cleaned up and they inhabited him. And the latter condition was worse than it was in the beginning. Your self-determination will eventually give out. What you ought rather to do is to lay down your weapons of warfare and surrender your whole life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what's intended by our text. The children of God have received him, have believed on his name, have been born again, not by ancestry, Not by our own ambitions, our desires, our goals, our dreams, our sincerity, our earnestness, our determination, our personal will, but have been born again by the work of God's Spirit in us. God has given us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to discern. That's the new birth. God's given us a capacity to see and appreciate the power and the beauty of the gospel. Aren't you glad for that? I often say in telling people about how God called me to faith, I thought about this after last week's message. I say that I didn't hear the gospel until I was 19 years old, almost 20. And I'm not convinced that there weren't faithful people around me communicating the gospel, and I simply did not have eyes to see or ears to hear or a heart to discern. Brothers and sisters, hear me this morning. This is the message of the gospel. That God has looked upon us with such love that he has sent forth his only son into this cruel and wicked world. And in spite of our rejection, Jesus would persevere in perfect righteousness. That he would die on the cross in our place. He became our substitute. He bore the wrath of God against our sin, bearing our shame and the nails in his hands. Jesus drank the bitter cup of God's wrath against us and died on a rugged cross. They buried his body. But on the third day, the cold and lifeless body of Jesus began to breathe again. And the stone was rolled away, and Jesus walked forth in great victory. And the angel announced, Why seekest thou the living among the dead? Christ is not here. He is risen. And indeed, he is. And this morning, Christ is risen. Today, Christ is risen, seated at the right hand of God. And by faith in him, we may be forgiven of our sins. We may have the hope and promise of everlasting life. This is the message of the gospel. And if God has given you eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to discern, you had better hasten to surrender your life and to break down your pride because God is after you. What I want you to leave knowing today is that in order to be called the child of God, you must be born again. And that does not happen 
in so many of the ways that are assumed in the world around us. I really want you to know that. Oh, I, I really want you to know that. And now I want to revisit verse 11. Because I'm convinced if his own could convince themselves that it was right to reject him, that there may be those of you this morning who can convince yourself that it's right today to reject him. Now, what we do is we lay ourselves down in the ditch and we draw comparisons between ourselves and others. And we can almost always find someone that makes us look good, right? I mean, even Charles Manson wasn't that bad compared to Hitler, right? I mean, there's always a point of comparison that leaves us feeling a little better about ourselves than we might have cause to really feel. And you've convinced yourself that because I'm better than most or because I'm better than them, which is usually a measurement based on your cultural preferences, which gets back to the whole idea of we're not born of blood or ethnic or national identity, because I'm better than them, and surely God is indebted to show me some favor, some mercy, some grace, when nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. What you, what you, what you must do is to come to Christ with empty hands, with empty hands, acknowledging I don't have anything that would earn your favor. It's just grace. It's just grace. It's just grace. I just want to plead with you. If you're here and you've not received him, if you've not believed in his name, in that deep and meaningful way that changes our life for the rest of our life and for all eternity, to come to Jesus. Come to him. Come to him. Come to him. Come to him. This is what we're intended to celebrate during the Christmas season. The getting and giving of gifts is supposed to be a prompt for us to remember the giving of the greatest gift. Receive it gladly and find forgiveness of sin and everlasting life. Receiving Christ and believing on his name. For those of you who have trusted and believed in Christ who are here as followers of Jesus, Christmas season ought to serve to fan the gospel flame in our heart to be reminded of the great lengths to which God has gone to save you from your sin. Consider all he's done. Not, not just what he's done through his son, but how he's been at work in your life. How the events of your life at the moment of your salvation culminate in the conditioning of your heart to receive the good news of the gospel. How all of the right variables were put in place. How all of the right people were there. How the word was preached in just the right way. How the spirit attended that moment. How you were convinced and convicted of the truth of the gospel. Remember how God saved you from your sin. Rejoice in the greatest gift that one could ever receive. The free grace of our Father. You're, you're going to contend with this over the next days. And you're going to have to reckon with this tension. If you're going to have meaningful gospel conversation, you're going to have to reckon with this reality. Now, I want, us, I want us to note one last time that you simply cannot divorce the saving purpose of our God from what God does in the sending forth of his son in a virgin birth, in, a, in, in an event we know as the incarnation which confounds the mind. 
Whatever you do this Christmas season, don't forget that Jesus came, not just at the cross, not just in his earthly ministry, but Jesus came in a Bethlehem manger to seek and to save that which was lost. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth in these moments to reflect on what you've done to rescue us from darkness. God, we, we were, as followers, bound to sin, yet you found us in our Egypt. Lord, you saved us from that slavery, and you've brought us out through the waters. We celebrate, God, that, that even as we experience these years of wilderness wandering, that there lies ahead for us a land that flows with milk and honey. God, I pray that you would bear with us in our impatience, God, that you would grant us forgiveness in our foolishness and our doubt. God, that you would be pleased to work through us, that many others would know that Christ is Lord of all, that others could, could know and, and sense and experience and, and trust the power of the gospel in the ways that, that we have as Christ followers. God, I pray that you grant conviction and mercy and grace to those here. Lord, any unbelieving God, I, I pray that conviction would fall hard in their heart. God, that they'd be able to discern the difference between a faith that cannot save and a faith that saves irreversibly. God, move powerfully in these next moments, we pray. And even beyond these walls, Lord, as we go to family gatherings and get-togethers of various kinds in the days ahead, help us to speak and to celebrate in conversation of what you have so powerfully done in our life. God, grant it so, we pray. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen and amen.